When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everybody, this is the No Film School podcast for the week of September 30th, 2023. I'm here with Jason Hellerman. And we recorded a day late because Jason was too hungover yesterday to record. (laughs) We actually, we were already not supposed to record yesterday, but. Yeah, either way, I have the the WGA strike has tentatively ended per terms in voting. Late night hangover of I went to Neat on Pico in Los Angeles, if you're familiar with it. And a showrunner put his credit card down and said, drinks are on me. So libations flowed into the night and early morning. And uh, yeah, I was not in the best shape yesterday. So happy to be recording this on a Tuesday. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know, which is nobody who listens to the, if you listen to this podcast, you're aware on Sunday before Yom Kippur, the WGA and the MPTP announced that they've come to terms. Those terms aren't out as we record on Tuesday. So we're not going to talk about terms, but we'll talk terms next week. But there's some stuff we should talk about, about the strike that people might not know about. One, shout out to the showrunner at that bar. Neat. Two, shout out to Drew Carey. A lot of people seem oh, yeah. to still not know this, but Drew Carey at the beginning of the strike opened up an open tab at Bob's Big Boy and where swingers, you can get lunch. Yeah. And Swingers, which are like both institutions of L.A. writerdom, where if you had a WGA card, you could eat for free. And apparently the final tap was $600,000. Yeah, it's amazing. Which admittedly, a man with a sitcom in the 90s can afford because of of the unions, right? He only was able to make that money from his hit show because of the unions. And the man understands that and gives the gratitude back. And is like, hey, I made this money because of the union and I will chip in. And so like, you know, a lot of people ate a lot of meals at Bob's Big Boys and Swingers over the strike. And shout out to Drew Carey for that. I say shout out to, I ate at both Swingers and Big Boy once and the staff could not have been more lovely and didn't make it weird. You know, they, well, I think I went in my writer's strike hat and they're like, great, you're a writer here. Today. Like, no bill, enjoy your day. And just made it really nice. And also like, I think I went with my wife and Swingers at least was like, if even if you have one person with you, they got to eat for free too. So. It was it was super nice and just in a time where you're not getting paid, any free meal is a good meal. And food insecurity is such a huge part of Los Angeles and you know, the ability to know like, oh, I can go drive to Disney and strike one day and also get a free lunch out of it is amazing. There are foods on the lines out there, you know, pizza delivered almost daily and sandwiches and a lot of cool donations. Food right here on Olympic or you know, food on Pico. It's like Pico and Overland or Pico and Prosser. They gave us free coffee every day. You know, you could not beat the businesses that came out and supported us. And just, again, the ability to know that you could have three square meals a day if you're picketing was amazing. 
Well, also, I mean, you know, not to harp too much on it, but the fact that you could do a date night there, the fact that you could take your spouse out there is actually kind of awesome and amazing. And like, you know, a lot of people during a strike, like, like it can feel like, oh, I can't do like I am striking. And so, and it's like, no, you can still take your partner out for a meal because Drew Carey slaps in that particular instance. And like, it was great. All the solidarity across all sorts of people and food vendors. And we had people in New York and, you know, I'm really glad to hear it. You know, my biggest fear about the end of the strike is the end of the I am the real Carol Lombardini Twitter account. But what's funny is that if you if you are not a Twitter person, there's a there's a fake Carol from the MPTP Twitter account that's been really enjoyable. But what's so funny is everyone like we don't know who it is, but everybody knows it's a writer and everybody's like, oh, no, now the WGA is over. Like, please don't stop. And it's like, well, SAG is still in strike, so it could be an actor, but we all know it's a writer. We all exactly. just like it's yeah. it's so perfect. If it's not it a writer, like, they should be a writer. Give up acting. Come on, come to the other side. But yeah, yeah, absolutely. You're a, you're an actress slash writer. So we're all a little bit worried that they'll get too distracted and busy on their next job to keep up the I am the real Carol Lombardini uh, Twitter account, which has been a real special part of this whole experience for everybody with their commentary on the food at Sherman Oaks Galleria. Truly um, a special time. Yeah, I mean, like you said earlier, we don't have any of the details, so we don't want to get too speculative here. But the email we received on Sunday said it was. An exceptional deal, and they're excited to bring it to us. And, uh, you know, 146 days is not uh, something to sneeze at. And I think uh, we count strike days until the deal is ratified. So technically, the strike will last in- until that happens. So depending on when voting is, I think we would set the all-time record on October 2nd. So unless it is fully finished this week, which, you know, is TBD, it's, it's early on Tuesday morning. So we might know even later today. And if we do, I'll try to update the article uh, with those details. but. And certainly no film school will cover the details of the deal when they come out. But either way, you know, it's it was a, a long summer from May 2nd all the way through, you know, the end of September. So, you know, as we move forward and look at it and hopefully ratify this deal, I'm excited for the gains we can get, not just for the people that I was around, but, you know, the next generation's coming up because, yeah, there's not the Drew Carey model of, of making residuals on a syndicated sitcom is sort of slowly slipping away and, you know, hopefully what we got with residuals in terms of streaming and other things paves the way for the new thing. I'll tell you what, there was news yesterday that The Office is being rebooted and, I, you know, that's going to be a very different job writing for The Office. I think you could almost do a direct comparison to what it was like being on a giant network syndicated sitcom in the early 2000s versus whatever this reboot of The Office on Peacock will look like. But I guarantee you it pays very different and pays out very different over the course of the next, you know, 10 or 15 years. Yeah, it's it's interesting. There's the the other social media kerfuffle of the last couple of days on film Twitter was the GQ article with Scorsese. <laughs> and I mean, it's if you haven't read it, it's a beautiful article and it's about mortality and meaning and sadness. And lo- it's great. It's a really great interview. A friend of mine was like, I'm going to read it every year. And I think she's right. Like, there's beauty in that. A lot of people harped on his comments about Marvel movies, which weren't even that inflammatory. He was just saying, I'm worried there's a whole generation of theater goers who think that's all of cinema but like obviously he almost did the joker like he's open to material but he said something really interesting where he's like i've been doing this for 50 years and asking me about the change in the industry is about is like asking someone in the 70s about the changes in the industry since the 20s right and it's like it is interesting to think about like it is in scorsese's career who's still making movies we're all looking forward to kill, killers of the flower moon everybody you know there's everybody who's seen it has great things to say in the 50 years of that man's career, it's a different industry than it was in the 70s. 
And it's going to, we, we're an industry that, you know, we're not making widgets here, folks. It's going to keep, and I am really excited that the union came together and recognized that this was an inflection point where the changes happened and they have to really stand up for the next generation of people for those, the office reboots for whatever comes next that they can, you know, nobody's, the, the union is not about getting people rich. The union, yeah. if it does their job right, will get some people rich. But the union is making sure that everybody who's working can at least afford to eat and have shelter. Absolutely. And that's not the situation we've been in the last couple of years. And it's also really interesting because pretty much everybody I've talked to, IATSE, and IATSE is, IATSE is running the, IATSE is on a three-year contract. IATSE is all the other crews, right? IATSE right. is cinematographers, IATSE is production design, IATSE is art, IATSE sound, IATSE is everything else. And they're on a three-year contract. And if, you know, I've now been doing this podcast long enough that it feels like seconds ago that the 2021 contract was up and they almost struck and they had a strike authorization vote. And then the strike, the contract they got, one got approved with a minority vote. So like 49% of membership voted to approve the contract because you got to remember, you've got a negotiating committee that goes out and gets the contract and then the membership has to approve it. I'm pretty confident the WGA is not going to come back with a contract membership won't approve. I think the the negotiating committee is well aware of what members are looking for. But because of the way IOTC votes, 49% of people were able to approve it. It was like an electoral college shenanigan thing. And I think there's still a lot of frustration in IOTC membership about, it's so funny that pretty much everybody I know is just assuming there will be an IOTC strike next summer. Like it's not a if, like literally people were like, Carol Lombardini, the real Carol Lombardini, we cannot wait to see you next May when IATSE is striking. Please bring the Twitter back for that. And like nobody's like, if. Everybody's like, when we are striking, please return to Twitter. Which is an interesting place to be in a year out from contract negotiations where you have a membership that's very much like, we do not feel like we got what we were ready for last time. And we honored our contract for the last three years, but we would like something more aggressive next time. And we're 11 months out from that, or no? Nine months out. Sorry. Yeah, that's it's creeping close. Yeah. I know. Well, because we've been, you know, I'm used to them being sort of a year apart. I was thinking of them as a year apart, but yeah, we're 146 days. I have a seeing suspicion with getting the tenants to membership. This will break the record for WGA. I don't think it'll be wrapped up by October 2nd. Is my gut. I mean, it usually takes a couple of weeks to verify and ratify these things. It's interesting, you know, what you said with IATSE. And I think a lot of times, you know, Look, we just got out of those pandemic years and in 2020, people forget that like that was the year we thought we would get close to a strike. The writers would get close to a strike. But when the pandemic began happening, a lot of the issues we thought we would strike over got tabled and carried over into this next negotiation, which is why, you know, you saw people not starting three years apart on where the industry had changed, but it felt like you were starting seven years apart on where things had gone and and what had changed there. And I think IATSE similarly in 2021. You know, we were well a year removed from full lockdown. So, you know, people were looking for deals, but maybe didn't get everything they wanted coming out of those years. That's where the sort of ripple effect or ramifications comes from these big economic changes that we've had to deal with, uh, you know, feeling that and moving forward. I think we talked about this too. Animation is up for, I think their deal is up soon next summer as well, right around the same time. So, yep. you know, these labor movements in Hollywood aren't going away. They're kind of creeping in. And until we fix for the giant readjustment that was post-COVID and this new AI, you know, situation that we have, I would expect a lot of labor to, you know, still have to strike or at least authorize strikes moving forward. I mean, SAG just did against 
the video games companies today for a lot of the same protections they want from the industry, right? AI, increased wages, residuals, things like that. So until we find a baseline or build a baseline around what these, I say, like, I guess, tenants of the industry have become or new pillars of the industry, then, you know, we're going to have to keep figuring out where our place is and, you know, taking to the picket lines, you know, unchecked public support because, you know, you've got to get find a way to pay your way and Los Angeles isn't getting any cheaper. Well, and, you know, I, I, I always like to, you know, I talk to a lot of people that are like, why is Hollywood dealing with such labor issues lately? Like, what is it that's new about this? And I always like to remind people that it's been like this the entire time. This is the history of Hollywood. Hollywood is only Hollywood. So there's this myth that the film industry left New York and went to California for the sunshine. But I want to point out that Paris has the film industry in France and London has the film industry in England and Tokyo has the film industry in Japan. And we got the film industry in California to avoid the precursor to IATSE. So basically, because there was a big legit theater, which is what we call people talking on a stage, not like a movie th- legit theater, because there was a big legit theater business in New York, and those workers were already unionized by the 1880s, 1890s, 1900s. They started unionizing film workers really early. And the film companies fled to California for two reasons. One, Edison had a patent on the cameras and they didn't want to pay him his patent licensing fees. So they were like, if we go to California, no one's going to enforce this law. Uh, and two, to avoid labor. Basically, you know, you look at a lot of those early productions from 1910s, 1920s, and they have these insane sets where they would like go to the California desert and build ancient Egyptian pyramids. Yeah, the the intolerance sets are still sitting on Hollywood Boulevard, right? Yeah. Yeah. And they would just build these. And like, you know, to do that in three weeks, you would have to throw manpower at it. And it was easier to do that in California where you could just work people around the clock to death, which you couldn't do in New York because of the unions. And so like Los Angeles, the film industry being in Hollywood is at least partially about labor history. And so this idea we have of like, oh, this is like a thing that's happening lately is really just an aspect of the fact that like the late 80s, early 90s were kind of chill about like there weren't big labor actions in Hollywood and people have short memories. But like this has been going on from the beginning. The WGA is from the 30s. There have been unionization efforts like this is, you know, the WGA never goes that long without a strike. And God bless them. And so it's, yeah, it's, it's like just part of the deal that this is, this is how we negotiate so that Drew Carey can make the big sitcom money. Strikes have also shifted the industry in such interesting ways. You know, I was going through the social media yesterday, figuring out what do I do now? You know, (laughs) when do I vote? When do I come back? And so I saw someone talking that the labor movement of the late eighties actually gave rise to the spec boom of the nineties because, you know, late eighties, Hollywood, a lot of it was kind of what we're seeing today, right? Like, IP and, you know, dystopian stuff or sequels and things like that. You know, you had all the Star Wars sequels and Ian Jones and, you know, some RoboCop. I mean, like lots of stuff. So the 90s became about what are the spec projects we should attach and what should we go on and how do we go that? And a lot of people are forecasting that that might be where we go back to now. Maybe not necessarily the spec boom of the 90s, but, you know, increase in the 25 spec sales we've had the past couple of years, you know, like absolutely the dregs of it. You know, what are some ideas that you can package without purchasing a book or bringing in, you know, who can make these lower budget or insanely higher budget things at different sizes. And with streamers wanting more, you know, dirty word content, that might be the best way to mine it. You know, they've pulled books and articles that have done okay. And look at Hulu this weekend, like the movie that was setting everything ablaze was No One Can Save You, which was just a spec script that got packaged, that got bought, 
and suddenly Guillermo del Toro is tweeting how much he loves it and everyone's, you know, amidst the waiting for the strike, I think, and nervous optimism watching a, you know, I'll say probably sub $10 million little horror alien invasion movie, which is kind of like a fun, tight thriller. So, you know, we, we don't know where the industry is going to go after this, but labor not only changes the way we do things and the way we get paid to do them, but also will you know, be a huge part of what, how the industry functions. These strikes, you know, not always, they, they can be tough to deal with and get through, but I do think they have brought in some of the coolest innovation, coolest ideas, you know, so we'll just kind of see where this one takes us. So speaking of No One Will Save You, there was a big thing going around about a script page in No One Will Save You that we wanted to talk about. Do you want to cue it up? Yeah, it's it's very funny. You know, we've I think written I've I've written at least about screenwriting Twitter a handful of times. Once in a while, there's a story that takes screenwriters uh, by storm, and everyone starts tweeting about whether or not you can do something. What's a rule in screenwriting? Blah blah blah. You know, it used to be bold slug lines were the hot button issue. I like to bold mine. Can't get into the debate now. I think it looks better. But Brian Duffield, who wrote and directed No One Can Save You, you know, he kind of broke in in 2010. He had a script that was on the blacklist called Jane Got a Gun and then has since worked on movies like Spontaneous and I think he, Love and Monsters. And he just is one of those guys who writes a lot of specs and when his specs get, you know, disseminated across town, you pick them up and read them. You know, he's got a ton of voice on the page, really interesting. And then now that he's gotten into directing, obviously you kind of have like part of a package there. So on Reddit, someone posted a page from No One Can Save You and the page you can look at on No Film School it's basically just one solid page. And the dialogue is just some broken words of she can't move, she can't move, she can't move. And then in bold, actual action as the, um, you know, if you've seen the movie, it's, I guess, maybe, let's say, 35 seconds of screen time as a woman confronts an alien in a room. And it's really stylized. There's bold, there's underlining, there's that she can't move over and over again. You'll have to, I mean, it's not a visual medium, so, you know, check it out. But anyway, people started screen grabbing and sharing all over like, you know, I'm a director. And if I saw this, I would think the you know person's out of pocket and wouldn't want to do it. Or there are people who are like, I think it's exciting and stylized. And just as someone, you know, my own point of view, I came up as an assistant reading Duffield scripts and, you know, passing them up to my boss. Or, and I always found them to be entertaining and it helped him stick out from the pile. And you knew when you got one that there was going to be some cool page uh, that was like that, whether or not you'd want to make the movie or whether or not you engage with the script. That's obviously part two. But, you know, it's an interesting debate. I think so many times people want screenwriting to be so formulaic and so rule-driven. You know, I taught a screenwriting course a couple summers ago, and I remember we had this one guy, Jim, who was super nice, who was an engineer, retired and was taking the class and a great writer. And But he always wanted there to be a solid rules, you know? Well, if I do this on page four, what do I do on page eight? You know, things like that. And unfortunately, screenwriting plays our blueprints, right? That's like, how do you get the audience to see the movie or get the filmmaker to see the movie and, you know, be able to create what's going on here. And it is like an emotional, evocative experience. And I think if you're liking the script and you're reading it and engaging with it, when you get to a page like this, you're going to be all in. But if you're already hating the script or not engaging with it, you probably will pull you out. It's really not a binary thing of if you can do it well, but it's like, can you do it well? Does it distract? If you were a new person sending this in, would I care? I don't think so. You know, I, I I do tend to think most people wouldn't care, but I don't know if it showed up on one of those websites where you pay for a review. If someone would be like, 
you've lost two points because this is not formatted <laughs> correctly, you know? <laughs> you would absolutely lose points for it in one of those websites, which is like, I, I have complicated feelings about all those websites. I think there's utility and use in getting other absolutely. readers and paying for those are sometimes very beneficial because asking your friends can be an echo chamber. So I think there's absolute benefits of like paying a stranger. I think that can be a good thing to, to get an evaluation of your creative work. That's fair. I think that those evaluations are often going to be very rule-bound and those kind of fun pages are going to stick out. I mean, the thing that you just talked about is there's two things you just hit on that I want to echo and really elaborate on. One, if you've done your job right with the screenplay and the reader is in, they will get to this page that is evoking fear and they'll be like, oh, fuck yeah, and they'll keep going. If they're already annoyed at your script for any other reason, it will just become evidence for them to be further annoyed. It doesn't, like, this kind of thing is not going to sway someone one person or another way. They're not going to be like half into your script and get to it and be like, oh, no, but he's brilliant. It's like they're already leaning one way or the other, and it's it's going to exaggerate. it. So if you feel like, oh, yeah, the screenplay slaps, you can totally get away with it. The other thing is all of the examples you listed don't feel gimmickly. They feel like organically part of trying to express something in a screenplay. Yeah. And that's what I always go back to with students is I'm always like, look, your job, like, yes, Chris Nolan used red type and wrote in the first person on Oppenheimer. He's already Chris Nolan. He can do that. Your job is to try and get in the door and present yourself as a serious person who understands what you're doing, who's ready to be a professional, which means fitting within certain boxes. But it is also your job to make your script sizzle and stand out and make it something where people are like, oh, I might not want to make this, but I want to read the next five things this person writes. And sometimes that involves trying to express things that are difficult to put in words because fundamentally, if cinema could all be put in words, we would just read screenplays. But it's a blueprint. It's pointing yeah. at the cinema. It's the finger pointing at the moon that is the movie and saying, this is the movie that it's going to be. And there are going to be things in your head that you want to try and find a way. And, you know, and it also is one of those things. I mean, he fit within the system. He got on the blacklist. This movie got made at Hulu. But, you know, I had a student recently who was working on something that's just like, their thesis they're going to direct and they're putting still images in. And I'm like, sure, who cares? It's yeah. for you to direct. You're not trying to submit it to things. You're just going to make it. You want to start every scene with a image? Why not? Exactly. Um, that wouldn't yeah. work for a submission process because that's going to feel like a workaround. But I had a pose that I had an actor, like a, a way of holding their hands that I wanted in a screenplay. And I like tried to describe it forever and it never worked. And so I just hired an ASCII artist you know, ASCII artist that like uses yeah. letters to draw a picture of someone. And I was like, here's what it needs to be. And they drew it in ASCII art. It was in the middle of the script. And yeah, it was like page 35 or something. So either you turned to page 35 and you were like, oh, I'm already charmed. Or you were like, oh, fuck this script. And now there's ASCII art. But that was a risk I knew I was taking. Yeah, it's, a, it's just the way it is. I, I remember I actually wrote about this script for No Film School. when We did our review of the... Blacklist and Stage 32 and this other website get made. I submitted this dark comedy I wrote about the Lindbergh kidnapping. And in it, the Lindbergh kidnapper, the way they identified him was that he had signed every letter with a symbol. And it was supposed to be like a secret thing where it's like, you know, the police would know what the symbol was. He's going to use a symbol so they know it was real when it came from him. You know, like if he put an ad in the paper or whatever. And yeah, you have to put that symbol in. You can't just describe like it's two triangles in a circle and one's black and one's white. You know, it's like, just slap it in there. And I think one of the favorite scripts I ever read, I remember being an assistant 2012, the summer of, and the script, extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile, was like taking Hollywood by storm. The writer was Michael Werwe, or is Michael Werwe, still with us. And it was on page 93 or something towards the end. If you don't know, it's a script about Ted Bundy. So that's like a big reveal in it. You get to page 50 and you realize this guy, Ted, who you think has been 
mistakenly uh, accused of crimes is actually Ted Bundy. And you were on his side for the first 50 pages. And then you're kind of like, oh, like, oh God, great, it was so good. Midpoint. The, the script is awesome. I mean, it's amazing. But so you get to page 93 and they're trying to get Ted to explain how he dismembered all these people. And he just, I can't, I, I'm sure I'm butchering it, but it's like the character in dialogue is like, I use dot, dot, dot. And you flip and there's a whole blank page on the other side. And it's just says chainsaw. And it's just chainsaw in the middle of the page. And then you flip. It's right at the end of the movie or at the end of the script. And I just loved it. I remember reading it as, and I just, I like knocked on my boss's door. And I was like, you gotta, you put down everything. The script was like 101 pages. I was like, you gotta read this thing. This is a blast. And we wound up making that movie with Zac Efron, which was cool. But after my time, I mean, we had, I think I had just left when they started shooting, but it, it was just cool. And that guy, that was that guy's first script. He was just a bartender you know, trying to make it in Hollywood and written that script and some other stuff and has since written many other things, but just a really cool dude. And I do think there's something, like you said, it's just like, if you're in, you're in. By page 93, I wasn't like, oh, this fuck, this hack just includes this dot, dot, dot chainsaw thing. No, like you were so in on that script and the storytelling was so good. And one thing I talked about in the article too is just voice. Like Brian Duffield scripts, Michael Rory scripts, they have just have voice. They pop off the page. You you're with someone like Shane Black's little Shane Blackisms when you read his script. So much just voice and entertainment value that, you know, I think you're either all in or you're not. But it's I also pose would pose, I guess, one thing I didn't write about, but I was talking to friends in a group there about it. It's like if you do that kind of page and someone doesn't get it, you didn't you probably didn't want to work with them anyway. Right. Like, yeah. like I want someone who's all in on what I'm trying to do. And if, you know, someone was like, oh, I love your script. We've got to take out this little designed page. It's like, okay, why? You know, why not? And I also think same with like directors who are tweeting like, oh, if I got this uh, as a submission, I'd pass on it because X, Y, Z. Okay, I probably didn't want you to, good. You know, like, seems like we're not on the same page. I want, you want someone who's all in, someone who gets that stuff. You know, look, whether or not it stays for the production draft, who knows? You know, probably not when you're writing sides and storyboarding, but the point is, especially for people breaking in, I'm here to entertain you. I'm here to take you on a journey. I want you to be there. And whatever you can do to keep that journey going is great. You know, obviously you don't want to do it every other page, but like one of the best, couple of the best scripts I've ever read, like they're not, the formatting's not even perfect. They're just, I'm in on the story. You know, it, it gets you there. I mean, if you've ever read any Tarantino, he's not like the, there's not brevity in that <laughs> writing, but it's still entertaining. I was just sharing a script from 2013 that, I worked on with Mickey Rourke, which is super fun. And Mickey had written this script called The Welshman. And he wrote it like a novel. And it, it is so long. And it takes people a long time to read. But it's a very gratifying journey. You know, again, it's, he's, he was famous when he wrote it. So not a big deal. But like, just, you're just in that, you're in that world. You know, like you want to be with these people. And it takes a longer time. Look, as an assistant, it was a bear to sit and read something. It's a 125 pages. It's written like a, you know, small typeface like a book, but it's also, again, how do you dictate the story? Where are you taking it? We went through many drafts trying to make it thinner and, you know, that's a story for a different pod, but it's just, you're a storyteller. What's the best way to tell your story? I think it boils down to that. And there's always going to be hot takes. What I love about social media is that like sometimes people take things a little too far and it was fun to see that movie get popular and then the page get everything going crazy at the same time. So you know, whatever you can do to tell the story, tell it the best way possible. The other expression I always like to go back to is the industrial creation of cinema, right? Like there's an industry. And if you want to participate in the industry, 
you have to learn how to play and dance the industry. If you are like, I'm going to go off and I'm going to live in rural Canada and I'm going to self-finance my movies by working in a mine, you can do whatever the fuck you want in your screenplay. But if you want to make it through the hurdle that is assistance and, and coverage readers, right? I, I started my industry journey reading coverage over weekends. One of the things you got to remember is that like there's a pre-built set of time that they're assuming a script will take. So like as soon as I heard you say 125 pages written like a novel, the thing that immediately pings for me is when I was reading coverage, I was like, okay, I have I have two scripts I'm reading every Sunday. Or when I was really cranking three scripts I could do on a Sunday. If that was yeah. the third script I'm reading on a Sunday and I open it and I'm like, oh motherfuck. Oh motherfuck. <laughs> and I'm gonna be here the rest of my day with this thing that like I, I know what my pace is. I can read a script in about an hour. I do a second like skim read another hour to make sure I like have it right before I start writing my thing. Like and you're going to throw this prose at me that's going to take me four hours to read. It's a different, it's just different. And you're going to yeah. ping at people. And so I, I always think about like screenplay structure, you know, like sequence one is the ordinary world. Sequence one is introducing the characters, introducing the world, but it's also introducing yourself as a writer, assuming they've not read you before. So it's introducing your voice and it's introducing techniques you might be using. And it's probably not the time to draw weird other techniques because it's the ordinary world, right? Like I feel like it's, like, we, you know, a screenwriter is demonstrating to me that they understand structure when they start playing with structure. But yeah, you've got to, you know, you've got to get to know me a little bit and get me into the thing and then drop a page like that. And then I'm like, ooh, you know, there's something here that's kind of interesting. Also, every example you've given that's good is about trying to find a way to, yep. it's, a, it's about trying to say, it's not trying to make something happen in the script that's not happening. It's trying to say, this is happening in the script. All of the elements of the story are there, and I'm trying to make you feel it more intensely, not trying to make a thing fit that isn't there. Yeah. And that's I, really what you're trying to do. Yeah, I'm always against arbitrary rules. I think we have an article on No Film School that's the, the only screenwriting rule is if you plant something, pay it off. You know, like the rest of it, it's, it's just, you know, everyone functioning in different ways. When I was an assistant, I, th I still have like a log of, I think. Well, the, except then we've oh, got the Pine Barrens, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. Which like <laughs> plants so many things that never, the number of my friends who are like, but after the final Sopranos were like, but what about the Russian and the Pine Barrens? Yeah. And I'm like, no, it's never coming back, man. It's never exactly. coming back. It's all planting. It's yeah. all planting with no payoff. And that's, and <laughs> oh, it can work. All exactly. people disagree. Yeah. But yeah, there's always, there's something out there. It, it's sort of what makes writing it's what makes it everything like um, it's a maddening career. It's like, oh, yeah, there are rules, but there's not really rules. There's format, but there's not really format. Yeah, I, I don't know what to tell you. That's why I tell people like you have to, you can't just write one. You got to write a lot of different things and you could try and experiment, see what works for you. And there's plenty of writers out there that include funky cover pages or like, you know, for a while I would do a quote on the second page, you know, that I dug or, or felt like worked. You know, it's just whatever you think works for you. What do you, what do you think works for the story? And that's why you need to write many different things. You know, I have plenty of friends who are like, that's this one script I've had for five years, write five more. You know, you gotta just, you're not going to find your voice in the first script you write. And you're also not going to find your style. You know, maybe you can impressively rewriting. I'm sure again, no arbitrary rules, but try different things out, take some swings. I do think it's like, it's so hard to write something of value. So when I see people take a bold swing, I know it's from the heart. You know, they're fear nobody's taking swings like that from the hip. You know, they're like, it takes a while to type that page out or to even conceive it, you know? So, um, well, also, I mean, to wrap it back around to that beautiful Scorsese GQ interview that everybody should go read a second time. Most of what he's talking about is his desire to learn exactly. that he continues to read to hope to learn that he continues to go to movies to hope to learn that like, 
he's not that interested in movies that are derivative of him because it seems like, well, I'm just watching you rip me off. Like, I'm not going to learn anything here. But he's way and voraciously interested in a wide variety of movies that are just as interesting as as young people are, are into because he just wants to keep learning and growing as a person at 81, which was like, I don't know. I was so touched by that article. I didn't even think about all the Marvel stuff. I was just like, yeah, that's the goal, right? Is that yeah. there is not a rule in filmmaking. There is not a rule in writing except grow as a person and expand your artistic thing and try and and understand the, the form that we get to play with and yeah. what it is. To, you know, screenwriting is like being a person. Like there are some general guidelines, but there are no hard and fast rules. Exactly. Yeah. I there are scenarios in which, in which it is probably the right decision to kill someone. Yes, there's like exactly. edge cases, but they're out there. Totally. All right. I think that's all we're talking about this week. I think we just yeah. wanted to like savor. That was all the topics we were going to hit. So I did a YouTube again. So I shot iPhone versus 35 millimeter. <laughs> so I have a YouTube video out now that's iPhone 15 Pro Max versus 35 millimeter. That was fun. You should check that out. And I've got an article about it up at nofilmschool.com. And, you know, you can continue to find me nowhere on the internet. So I'm going to try and quit Twitter again now that the strike is done. I know SAG is not done, but the, the writers are the good Twitters. Let's be real. <laughs> and, and they should be back. Stop. Twi- they should stop tweeting and be back to writing. And if you want to take 35 millimeter classes with me, Brooklyn35millimeter.com. Oh, that's awesome. That, I, I wish I could. That is amazing. I'm at Jason Hellerman on Twitter. Jason at nofilmschool.com if you want to email me. And no, I guess I'm going to be one of those writers getting back to work. I tried to use the strike to my advantage and finish a couple specs and Hopefully we'll get those out in the next couple of weeks, but you know, continue to click on no film school. I'll as soon as I have the details of what the steel is, when it's outlined, you know, we'll definitely have article explainers on it, you know, and I'm hoping with, there'll be a swift return to work and I'm excited for where Hollywood's going to go. I would love to see a spec boom. I, you know, I'd like to see more original ideas out there. And, you know, my parting wisdom is what Charles has said a dozen times this episode, go read that Scorsese GQ article. It truly is magical and i don't know it's how do you we do, i don't somehow don't appreciate scorsese enough even though i feel like he's one of the most famous filmmakers of all time like yeah. there's not enough to say about this guy yeah okay there's one hard and fast rule of screenwriting i want to end with which is tweet less yeah tweet less I for sure that, yeah. yeah the only guaranteed rule see you all next week <laughs>